you know, the arrival of the letter, about to make love, about to leave home, whatever it is you've got them doing, and you leave them hanging there overnight before you come back to them the next morning and just hope that they're there waiting for you, because sometimes they're not. Welcome to Ears Wide Open, a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. Uh, I'm Anna Livesey, the curator at large at the Open Book, and today I have with me Stephanie Johnson. Stephanie Johnson is a writer across many genres. Uh, she is the co-founder of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and she is a Ponsonby local. She lives nearby. Hi, Stephanie. <laughs> Hello, Anna. Such a pleasure to have you here. For the beginning of this podcast, Stephanie is going to read an extract from a book which has the name Lily Woodhouse on the cover, but was in fact penned by her own fair hand. <laughs> All right. So we're in northern New South Wales in the 1930s. The crunch of her boots on dirt and stone, the slip of her hand into his. Look at me. He did, though it cost him. She was hatless the hot wind stirring her hair, lifting it from her smooth face. He quelled an impulse to push past her and pick up her hat from where it lay in the dirt, put it back on her head, her face, the golden colour of it. She was summoning courage to back whatever decision she had made. He could see it in her eyes, resolute but lacking the nerve. Jerilyn will be yours. I will make it legal, in your name. You can have Joe, your brothers, whomsoever you like. I think perhaps in a year hence. Hence. She talked an odd mixture of blasphemy and Bible. He nodded. That's what Eddie wanted, what he wanted. But in the meantime, between now and then, you will be my lover. Lover? A laugh broke out of him, startling them both. What did she mean? She wanted him to love her? How? She was his grandfather's widow. She must mean lover in the European way, lover when no love was certain, adultery. He shook his head. You won't? Her voice had risen and she was blushing as if she hadn't expected him to refuse her. In that case, you can leave. Go and find your no-good friends. Fury burst in him to match hers. Her appalling proposal and the insult to his friends, no good, she had no idea. They were too good, too trusting. He had worried about them every day since they had left. In this country, there were dangerous, blinkered men all over this country, men who would hate them on sight, men who thought killing a coloured man was nothing. That's from Jowlin <laughs> by the River, which is a novel I've just finished reading and really enjoyed. Oh, thank you very much. In your long writing career Stephanie you've written prose and you've written poetry you've written novels and you've written short stories you've written plays I've written, written for far television. too much basically <laughs> <laughs> do you think of any of those genres as your natural home as a writer I think your home shifts doesn't it and and I think when I started out I was a um you know, as many of us, we start writing poetry and short stories, but really when I had the f first sense of myself as a writer, I suppose, was when I, as a playwright. And uh, when I had a few plays picked up and, and given, you know, proper professional productions, at that stage in my life, I thought I'd never write anything else, really. I just, I, I love, still love writing plays. But um, now, 
I'm at home writing novels. That I don't, you know, I sometimes think, oh, you know, I'll write a short story, but I, I don't really. I'm, I just want to be in for the long haul. So I'll come back to that long haul comment because that's so interesting. But what is it to want to write a play? I can understand the desire to make a narrative of one's own, but to make something that others will then take and act out, what is the feeling in the mind that makes you want to do that? Well, one of the things that I really love about um, writing plays and, and getting them on, I mean, you can write plays till you're blue in the face but they don't really exist do they until until they they're embodied by actors and they've had the director and everyone else what what I love about it is that conviviality the fact that um you know some playwrights um apparently I've heard uh, won't allow the actors to change you know a full stop a comma nothing you know whereas I think that you have to allow uh, to, you know, you can't allow them to rewrite, you know, but um, you can allow them to have some changes here and there, if, and, and it helps that the actor then to really feel that they own own the role. And um, it, yeah, it's just lovely because, um, as you would know yourself, Anna, as a poet, um, the kind of the act of writing is very solitary, and um, and I think people who continue to write, as I have done, into midlife and later. Are people that are, are happy and to a certain extent I mean no one is totally but happy in their own company you know I mean we are social animals we like to be with other people but writers generally uh, don't don't mind being on their own for hours and hours and hours of every day but when you write a play and when you go into rehearsal it's 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 there is that wonderful thing of that everyone being focused on the same project and you're all and you're all working together the joy of co-creation. Mm, yeah, it's just fantastic. There's nothing like it. I re- I remember when, when one of my first plays was was um, produced down and just it was just a student production when I was a student at Canterbury University, and Jennifer Compton, who is a um, New Zealand Australian writer, well she's lived in Australia for many years now. She uh, was the writer in residence that year, and she directed this little play. And I'll never forget that she she said to me, "You'll love this. It's like being God." <laughs> And in a funny way, it is because you're you're sort of sitting in the dark, uh, looking at this thing, which you know the genesis of it was just this something that you came up with all on your own, and and you know, and there was a period there when I was writing plays um, where, where it was very fashionable to discuss the death of the playwright, where this idea that you know um, ensembles she's still clearly alive, listeners. I'd like to say <laughs> not dead yet. <laughs> On, on, you know, you could come up with a play that was just as good by working with an ensemble of actors. But I think we've we've moved away from that again now. And when you look at, you know, some of the beautiful plays and fantastic things that are happening in the theatre world, you know, around the globe, they're, they're younger playwrights and they're producing really fantastic stuff. And it's interesting, that sense of... Um uh, the author being picked apart or di- or disempowered in, in favour of the text or the collective mm. creation. And as a writer, you think, well, actually, this is an expression of something about me and myself. And what is picked up by others might be different from that. But I'm not probably putting this very well. The, the satisfaction of capturing something as you wished it to be mm. on the page, I think, is what I love about being a writer. Mm. Mm. And, I, and I think that progression from writing poetry to writing plays is is a sort of a well-traveled path because you know when you're writing a poetry every word 
has to matter. There cannot be any extraneous words, you know, and, and it's the same with writing plays. It's with characters, it's often what they're not saying. You know, people don't speak from the heart necessarily. And and as a, and if you if you go through that sort of crucible of writing for the stage or for television, if it's good quality television, which we don't seem to have in this country, um, you 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 learn um, about subtext and how to avoid it, and um, you know, and 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 how to kind of uh, really penetrate the the psyche of your characters. And surface what they need to say for the audience. Mm, mm, mm. And what and and as I say, what they're saying is not necessarily what they actually mean, so or what they actually think. Mm. <laughs> so I picking up on what you said about being in it for the long <laughs> haul. So you have written some poetry. In my view, as a poet, is that poetry is sort of for the lazy and indolent who can't be bothered. <laughs> Can't be bothered writing a whole or having the having the staying power. So well, no, because I think really long novel. I think serious poets spend a lot of time, don't they, angsting over each line. You know, to write a very good poem is uh, you know going to you know unless it's you've written it in a blinding moment of inspiration. Somebody said that um, that um, poetry is the one night stand and and uh, the novel is the marriage. Mm, (laughs) And 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 I think that's true in that when 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 I know that. I'm really embarking on a novel and I can feel I'm really standing on solid ground and off we go. I know that I'm going to be with these these people and in this period of history um, for, you know, two years, 18 months to two years. You know, they, they will be my daily com- companions and and there there is something very soothing about that and, and comforting because you know that they're, they're there for you and you sort of leave them... You know, at the end of each day's work, as long as you've had a good day's work and you've made some progress, you're kind of leaving them hanging there, you know, the arrival of the letter, about to make love, about to leave home, whatever it is you've got them doing, and you leave them hanging there overnight before you come back to them the next morning and just hope that they're there waiting for you because sometimes they're not. They've taken a break. Yeah. (laughs) So tell me about your writing habits then. When you're writing a novel, through my forties, a lot of the time I was um, writing um, film and television, and and so I would uh, not necessarily have this kind of way of working. But I, in my fifties, now that I'm well and truly on the scrap heap, uh, <laughs> in that respect, it's really um, being very rude about the <laughs> recording studio we're in, it's very nice. <laughs> No, I mean in terms of I'm no longer. I don't write television anymore. I um I don't write, I don't write film anymore. And I'm also not teaching anymore. I did teach creative writing for a long time, but I don't have a PhD, so they've got rid of people like me. It's the um the theorist versus the practitioner, and I am a practitioner, and I'm not a theorist at all. In fact, I have a sort of quite a mystical attitude towards it, which is deeply unfashionable so in this day and age. So tell me a little bit more about that. I don't... Um, I couldn't actually describe to you my creative process because all I know is that as long as I can... I suppose it's like a meditation. I kind of... if I, 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 It's actually like a physical sensation in my brain where, you know, of, of sinking down... The, and, and, I am and, nodding, listeners. And once I'm once I'm in that space, all going well, it's almost like I'm listening and I'm writing down what 
what I can hear and what I can see in my, in my mind's eye. But anyway, on a good day, uh, I sit down in the morning and I type up what I hand wrote the day before. My computer is absolutely ancient. It's one of the very first laptops that was ever made. It's an IBM ThinkPad, it's called. And it, it is not uh, internet capable. I don't go... Perfect! I do not... You, in my study, you cannot go online, which I love. It means that if I need to check a fact or something, I have to get up and go into the living room where we have the family computer. So anyway, so I type up what I wrote the day before, and of course I'm making changes all the way I'm going along, and then I turn that computer off, and I write by hand. So all, all my novels are handwritten. That's amazing. But so I think, what is the benefit of that to you? Well, I, I think it's very unhealthy to look into a light source, actually. <laughs> I think it's bad for your eyes. Don't stare at the sun, Icarus. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and and um, and I think also the the kind of the impulse from the brain down the arm into the hand. My handwriting. I'm left-handed, and my handwriting is fairly illegible, actually. Um, but but. I, yeah, I just think it's got something to do with the pace of it. And so that when I'm thinking and uh, I'm not necessarily scrolling something down, rather than s staring at a screen, I, I look out the window or whatever. I, I suppose I'll be the, my generation will be the last generation that, well, I don't think even, I don't know any writers my own age who still write by hand, actually. It's interesting <laughs> that... Um, and the brain, you mm. know, and there's research about the fact that as you handwrite, your brain works mm. differently mm. than as you type. I, and they, they, they're saying this with children now, that children, you know, so many, uh, especially at private schools where they where they have a device, you know, and actually it's, it's actually necessary for children to write, to form the letters, not to type them, you know, in terms of their learning. And, and, and I, all I know is that that's what works for me. I, I think probably the most important thing um, is, is that when you, when you are working on the computer, for it not to be internet capable. Because you, can, you, you waste so much time looking at your emails and surfing the internet. And I mean, and most of my novels are historical. I mean, I've written a lot of satirical contemporary novels as well. But that's the main thing that's really changed, I think, in the last sort of decade is the, is the method of research. Because I used to, like, it might take me, f you know, four days to find out something like, when did we need passports? When did that come in kind of thing? Whereas now you can just Google and it'll be, you'll have that information in a second. In a way, something has been lost along the way as well as something gained. And when I used to have to spend hours in a library or hunting through second-hand bookshops looking for things, on the, along the way, I would be reading all this peripheral stuff which would enrich my understanding and knowledge of how people lived and thought. So talk to me a little bit about Lily Woodhouse then. <laughs> tell, me, tell me a little bit about... Geraldine by the River and the, the Lily Woodhouse story. <laughs> well, publishing is a, uh, as, as we all know, uh, uh, is, is, is a, it, probably in a state of crisis, publishing books. Um, and I'm what you would call a mid-list author. And I wanted to try something different. I wanted to write a really good commercial novel. So I thought, well, I'll do it under a different name. And 
I had an I have an agent in Sydney, and so I asked her if she would send Jarolyn out under a pseudonym rather than under my own name. So she agreed to do it, and it went to. In fact, the first publisher that it went to accepted it. And they probably would have never smelt a rat if I hadn't made a, a bit of a mistake in that I'd provided a biog, uh, which was something like um, Born in Broken Hill, Lily Woodhouse is married to a New Zealander uh, and lives on the Gold Coast where they both manage a hotel. This is her first novel. Now, <laughs> if, I, <laughs> if I hadn't put this is her first novel, I think I would have got away with it, but... They didn't believe it was a first novel. They came back to my agent and they Craft said... came through. They said, this is a practised hand. Who Who is this? And eventually my agent told them who I am. And um, and I was worried that they would uh, then say, oh, well, bugger that. No, she's a middleist. We know her. Who cares? But miraculously, uh, they, they, they went with it. And... Um, I remember my dear friend Peter Wells suggesting to me a few years ago, you should have a pseudonym. You know, it's like when you've written a lot, as I have, and a big backlist, to sort of... And and so when when the book was accepted and then when it was published, I really had this sense of being reborn. It was the most intoxicating, wonderful, wonderful feeling, and I just loved it. And I, and I hoped that it would last, but I made a couple of fatal mistakes. And one was using my husband's name as... as Lily, he is. L- Lily, he's Tim Woodhouse. He's <laughs> oh, Tim Lily. Woodhouse, yes. And, um, and, and I, I mean, I, see, I, I didn't really... I hadn't thought it through properly. I didn't think the book would be published in New Zealand as well. I thought it would just be published in Australia. But, of course, it was published here as well. And um, and then I had a phone call from a very nice man I know who's a journalist. And he knew he'd worked it out. And and I couldn't... And, I, I mean, I could have gone... I mean, I did try denying it at first. And then I pleaded with him. I said, please don't write this article because just let me have this beautiful feeling for a bit longer. And he said, no, if I don't write the article, someone else will... And I loved the book, and he and so he wrote this beautiful, very positive thing for the Sunday Star Times in in New Zealand, and and that was you know, and that was the end of it. So I don't know how people like Eleanor Ferrenti and all of them. I don't know how they do it. Anyway, I, 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 if I had used a different surname, I think perhaps I would still be safe. And does it feel unsafe to have been outed as Lily Woodhouse? I just would have liked it to have continued for a bit longer. I mean, the pu- publishers really intensely dislike pseudonyms because in, in this day and age, you know, you have to do interviews and, and, you, and all of that. And, and even though they assured me, this was before I was outed, they assured me that they would be doing what they call book-led publicity rather than author-led publicity. But it's very hard these days to do book-led publicity because... Journalists don't, and reviewers don't have time to read the book. And also, as you know, the book pages are shrinking in every kind of mainstream. I mean, we have this, what we're doing now, kind of taking its place. But um, if I was still incognito, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be doing this. Well, we would be, but you would be, have a tea towel over your head. And I'd be doing so my Australian accent flat you. out, mate. 
We could do a portion in there. <laughs> so such an interesting story. And tell me a little bit about the book. Just give us just give us enough for the readers to understand the what we're going to talk about as we talk a bit about this wonderful novel. It starts in 1917, and it's set on a, um, a big farm with a great, big, beautiful house in northern New South Wales. And uh, I've kind of imagined that this um, ha- this farm is is near Lismore, and it's on the uh, Richmond River or the Wilson River, the Richmond, which is a tributary of the Wilson. Uh, so we're kind of in the hinterlands of Byron Bay. And as it opens, um, Matthew Fenchurch, who's the patriarch, uh, has had news that his favourite son has been killed on the battlefields in France. And he decides to build a memorial um, for his son and for all the other young men of the district who have been slaughtered. And coming, he does this, and uh, his daughters arrive, his adult daughters, with some of their children. And one adult daughter who's... Uh, married to a very wealthy businessman in Sydney, arrives with her lady's maid, Rufina, who is a German who sort of got stuck in uh, Australia during the First World War. At that time, so we did the same thing in New Zealand, all the men were interred, but the women weren't. So if you were German, you were locked up, but the, the women, they locked the women up in the Second World War as well, but <laughs> in the First World War, they didn't lock the women up. Anyway, Rufina and Matthew fall in love and they get married. And uh, then, and various things happen, and 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 then in the second part of the novel, the the Matthew has died by this stage, and Rufina comes back to, comes to New Zealand to look for his other surviving son, who is a, a basically a remittance man uh, with a big problem with the bottle, who who has been taken in, and kindly, kind of looked after and loved by this a, a, a fictitious. Uh, tribe or Marae down in um, in the Bay of Plenty, and she finds Eddie, but it is his son who catches her eye, and this is Irving, whose mother Sounds is very sexy, Marley, Irving. and he and eventually Irving co- goes back to Australia, and more than that I cannot say. Yes, well we did get a little bit of a teaser at the beginning, <laughs> didn't we? so. What is the difference for you then as a writer? So I understand what you're saying about it, you know, for your audience, a, a change of persona and a change of market positioning. It's the corporate strategist and we're mm, speaking. Well, there. that's what I tried to do. I don't yeah. know how successful I was, but anyway. But as a writer, <laughs> what felt different, if anything, to you about this book? Because I would not have said, oh, this is an airport book or this is a, you know, I would have just said, oh, I'm, I'm loving this novel and it's beautifully written and it has a lot of story. And I know, it's, it's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a wolf in sheep's clothing because well after after I'd published Geraldine actually I thought oh shit I better read some commercial novels <laughs> so so I read uh, Leanne Moriarty now she wrote Big Little Lies right she sells by the truckload now the one thing about Leanne Moriarty a bit like J.K. Rowling is you cannot fault the storytelling Fantastic stories, really good stories, but the language, it's almost like there has been no thought put into the language. And and so I find that very difficult because to me it's like listening to bad music. 
you know, um, it's... We cannot be doing with this. We cannot. Uh, um, but at the same time, I'm hugely admiring of those writers that managed to pull that off. I mean, you look at, um, you know... When, when I wrote Jarolyn, I was actually thinking a little bit now and again, I thought of my childhood reading of Catherine Cookson, who you probably... Have you, you have heard of her. Very well read, Zariana. Anyway, I, I wanted to write something like that... <laughs> I'm showing her my badge, which says... Well, I have to put my glasses on to read, read it. Reader's going to read. I actually thought I was wearing my badge that said well-read. It's a shame <laughs> I'm not. But it is true, I'm relatively well-read. And an ex-bookseller, so I... And an ex-bookseller. You know, these things come across and your desk. I think, you know, what What I wanted to write when I wrote Jarolyn was that was a was a book that um, that people could feel that they didn't have to make any effort to read. That you just start... It was a bit like watching, you know, a good film or whatever, that you just picked it up and you read, and there was never going to be a point where you're thinking, who the hell is this? And, um, you know, where are we now? Although, if you go on Goodreads, there are actually some people complaining about Gerilyn and that they didn't like the fact that I leapt ahead in decades, even though I say, you know, 1939 or whatever we are... You know, I, 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 I actually put it in the chapter title, so you're not. But uh, Lily, Lily, bless her heart, has uh, just written another book. Has and, she? Yeah, she has. Lily. Goodness. Good old Lily. And, um, and, and I've sent it off. And I think, and what they're telling me is that this one is more commercial. <laughs> because Lily might make her fortune. Good old Lily. No, I don't think so. But anyway, um, you know, I can never cease hoping. Um, uh, the, the, this, the new Lily is, is set at, on a farm at the foot of the Blue Mountains in New South Wales. And it all takes place within a month. Gosh, Lily on speed. Yeah. I mean, there's something, all sorts of things that have happened in the past that impact upon what's going on in that month. But I never go back to the past. I just stay in that month. And the book starts at the beginning and it finishes at the end with this couple who have been living in Wellington for 18 years, Australians, and they and the, the opening line of the book is, I will never come back to Australia until you are dead. And so they are, they have gone back to Australia and, and they stay for a month and they're on the ship back to Wellington. So maybe that's, I, I don't know. I mean, I think the thing of cracking, I think if you can write a really good popular novel that does not insult your reader's intelligence and is still well-written, then that's probably one of the most difficult things you could, you could ever attempt and, and achieve. And I haven't cracked it, but I want to crack it. I, I am really impatient now with very literary fiction. I, I pick up a novel, which is basically anything that's been shortlisted for the booker, and, <laughs> and I think, what the f- hell? You know, it's, like, it's okay. We said cunt on our last oh, one, so you, you right. can go right ahead and say fuck. It's completely you fine. You know, it's like I don't want the writer in between me and the page turning handsprings and showing me how bloody clever they are. I am instantly bored by that. I really am. I, you know, I, I, I don't know whether it's a facility of age or whatever, but I really just want to sit around the campfire listening to a good yarn. Actually, uh, and I, I, you know, I love that so much. I, I, my next question was to say. You know, I am a narrative addict, and what do you think that Lily is offering? But I think that answer of the stories around the campfire, <laughs> yeah. you know. And to be what we all want, don't we, as readers or listeners to music or anything, is an escape from the sort of dreary quotidian. So if a writer can offer you that, or a song, or 
and where you actually do forget who you are and your own boring shit, you know, for, for 10 minutes, then that's, that is gold. That's gold. It is gold. And mm. I, I definitely got that from, from Lily, bless her heart. So historical fiction is interesting, and I noticed that you've written a few historical books over your time, you know, nearer history or further history. Uh, if one thinks about narrative as an attempt to overcome obstacles, you know, there's no sort of story and things staying the same. When you look back into the past and you write historical fiction, you can say, oh, there are these constraints in the past. You know, mm. people didn't have the internet and, and, and class was much more important mm. and it was harder to travel and to communicate. Does that make those stories more poignant or easier to construct in some ways? What is the I think historical really, attraction? You, oh, I, I love delving around in the past. I mean, you don't have to think about climate change or plastics in the ocean for a start off, which... You know, I dream about at night turtles swimming along with plastic bags coming out of their asses. I and and the other beautiful thing about writing historical fiction is that, depending on how far back you go, pre-Freud. So, which is very difficult for us to imagine. Bugger him, breaking everything. Yeah, because even <laughs> now, in you know, in the twenty-first century. Um, psychoanalysis and the way that we think about sex and all of that is actually Freudian still, or spin and or spun on from Freud. But Freud is still like the basic building block of of all of that. So when you write uh, a novel set in the nineteenth century or early twentieth century, people had no regard or understanding of any of that. So one of my novels, um, Belief, which is about a man with religious mania. And he, who was actually completely insane, but 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 people around him just think he's a bit odd and a bit difficult. And you know, you, you, we weren't so quick to label things like things like we are now, like with little boys if they're you know running around smacking into the walls and yelling and screaming, then they're immediately put on Ritalin. You know, it's like. That was just normal male behaviour. Little boys will like to shout and yell and do dangerous things. You know, it's just normal, you know. And and I, I love retreating into, um, into a world where things didn't have labels. And and I, I have taught... One of, one of my teaching jobs was um, at Waikato, and I loved this job. I, I wish it was still going. Uh, where I, uh, for the history department, I taught a stage one paper in writing historical fiction. So I had to, first of all, we did its kind of research methodology and all of that, but then, then they would write. And one of the things, you know, if, if you're writing about um, Western or, you know, European culture in the past, you have to have a kind of working understanding of the Bible because that was even if people weren't, most people were kind of nominally Christian. And so they did have this kind of, you know, the, the metaphors and the furniture and things that they had in their, in their own heads were, were, was biblical. I mean, I had hilarious things where students would write things set in the, tw in the 19th century where people were, women were addressing one another as Ms., you know, so you'd say, no, no, Ms. didn't come in until it was invented the 19 in 1975. Right. After sex was invented, right. you know. And also the whole thing about you didn't just go around, um, you know, wildly going to bed with people because you would get pregnant and and the scorn and that you endured. And tract infection and, with and no syphilis and whatever else. Yes, that's right. Jesus. You know, that. so the whole moral... 
Uh, you know, I mean, I, I have, um, like you, just read and read and read and read all my life. And um, and, uh, and as a young, you know, young woman, I, I was, you know, read the Victorians. And so, you know, once you've read Thackeray and you've read Austen, you've read the Brontes and Jane Austen and all that, you, 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 you glean a, a, um, an understanding of what... England was like at the time and for Gerilyn you know I've always loved Catherine Susanna Pritchard and uh, you know those sort of early Australian Eleanor Dark you know all the, the women particularly the women that were writing at, at, at that at that time in Australia and so and also I just have this great love for Australia so I you know I'd, I'd you know I'd read a lot about Australia at that time and and so it's easy for me now for for Lily for the Lily books to go back to that kind of mid mid twentieth century Australia. And it's very evocative in the book. I'm, I'm looking forward to the next <coughs> Lily Woodhouse book. Mm, maybe so, they'll say no. <laughs> oh, maybe. Which takes us to the question of Australia and New Zealand. And you have that wonderful phrase: you divide your time between Australia. And Lily New does. Oh, Lily divides her Lily, time between Lily, Australia. Lily and New does Zealand. that. You know, Steph, she she hasn't got any money. Oh, I see. Because <laughs> you know, I I read that and I thought, oh, I just thought I aspire to divide uh, my time. And I thought, no, I thought, what can I divide my time between? I thought, well, sleeping and waking. Newmarket and Ponsonby. That's right. Anna Livesey divides her time between Newmarket and Ponsonby. <laughs> All right, but well, we I do... divide my time between my study and the kitchen. Right. We do. Um, <laughs> you do have obviously a great uh, love for both Australia mm, and New Zealand. I do, and I do, and I, and I really enjoy all the rivalry. And well, I love the Bledisloe Cup, for example. <laughs> and I get really annoyed with hearing the Australian anthem again and again and again in the Commonwealth Games. <laughs> Much rather hear God of Nations, actually. right? Right. But uh, no, I mean I am a New Zealander, absolutely to my toenails. But I lived in Australia in my twenties. I married an Australian, and um, my reader, my, I married him. Dear reader, I married him, and my son Stanley Woodhouse, skyscraper Stan, the musician and songwriter. He he um, was born in Sydney, and we still have lots of family and friends over there. But we live here, and you know, if there was a war, uh, I'd be wearing the lemon squeezer hat. And I'd right. Be, I'd be fighting for the New Zealanders <laughs> against the Australians. You <laughs> mean? Absolutely. Yeah. If it came to that, if but it, it won't to come to that. And and I do love. There's something about Australia. The minute I get off the plane there, I don't know what it is. I just feel so happy. Brid Bridget Williams Books published a book of mine, one of those We Readers, um, uh, two years ago, and it's called Playing for Both Sides, Love Across the Tasman. And it's a little memoir, but I write it and uh, in, in, in couching it in these terms and looking at my life on either side of the Tasman. <laughs> okay, so I have one last question for you, which you may have sort of already answered, which is... Tell me your origin story as a writer. When did you begin to think of yourself as a writer? Well, probably when we were talking about the playwrights thing. You know, you're, you're going to feel like God and mm. la la la. Mm. Playwright, it's very intoxicating playwriting because, and it can be absolutely hideous too, because you sit in the audience and you know when you've got the, you know when you've got them in the palm of your hand, and you know when you've completely lost them, and that is a terrible feeling. So, writing 
I think it was um, Stephen Polyakov, who's a, a British, was I think he's still alive, British playwright, and he, he said that playwrights traditionally have very short creative lives. And, I mean, if that's not true, because some playwrights like Roger Hall, that's, they just carry on. That's what they, that's what they do. But a or lot, Shakespeare. Or Shakespeare, but <laughs> we don't know. I don't think he lived to a ripe old age. But, but, the, um, but I, think, I think what often happens with playwrights is because you can really only have one major idea in a play. And after a while, it get, I think for some, some of us, it gets frustrating. When you write a novel of a decent length, you know, you can have all kinds of things going on. You can have a cast of hundreds. You, you know, you don't have to worry about money. You don't have to worry. You just tell... You don't have to worry about how much it's going to cost to tell that story because you can just tell it on the page. Mean things, I suppose. Maybe this is why I'm no longer teaching writing is because... <laughs> I used to say to my students that you cannot call yourself a writer until you have a reader. And I don't mean your mother. Mums don't don't count. Mums don't count. You know, you, you, it's an equation. So you can sit and write away to your heart's content, and that's fine if you're happy doing that and it never sees the light of day. But really you need... There is some kind. There is a, a relationship there between the the invisible reader, really, and 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 the and the writer. I think probably in the world there's you know such a handful of people who actually make a living as writers, and the rest of us have to do what you're doing, what so many people do, where you you know you don't give up your day job. And actually, that would be. Uh, that to me, that's another really important piece of advice. That's on a parallel with not writing on an internet-capable computer, is don't give up your day job, especially when you're young, because you want to be out there being, you know, rubbed up against by people who piss you off, and also meeting people who you really like, and dealing with things that you might not politically actually agree with, but you have to kind of do it because you're working for a corporation, and all these things are grist for the mill. You know, they're all things that will inform you. And so that when you get to your 50s, 60s, whatever, and maybe you don't have to work like that anymore and you can write, you have then got this wonderful, rich stuff all stored up in your head. All the people you've met, the conversations you've had, the places you've been, the things you've done. You know, I think it's very unhealthy for young people to think, oh, now I'm going to be a writer and I'm going to sit alone all day. Not good. I had a, I had a, um, I was very privileged. I was given the Randall Cottage residency in, in Wellington in 2016, which was when I wrote West Island, which is a big non-fiction book about five New Zealanders who became household names in Australia in the early mid-20th century. And I went off down there to do it. And when I arrived in Wellington, I was blithely saying to people, I haven't lived alone for 30 years. And then after a while I realised I had actually never lived alone in my whole life because I'd gone from my family to big flats to various ghastly blokes, you know. And, uh, <laughs> and so I lived alone in Wellington for six months and, and, and I have to say I really didn't like... I mean, I loved having the cottage and I loved the freedom to write and all of that, but I didn't like being alone at night. I, you know, I, I think even We're when you... such mammals, aren't we? Well, yeah, when you look at the higher primates... They all club. They all sit together, picking fleas off one another on the same branch or the same rock. And the only monkey there's on its own is the monkey that no one likes. And I didn't like being the monkey that no one likes. <laughs> I really didn't like it. 
even though I'm, I'm, I'm so grateful to the Randell Trust because I would not have been able to write that book without mm. that. Mm. And, and I have written it. Well, Stephanie, this has been an amazing conversation. It's well, really thank a you, Anna. Thank you for your interest in my work. Oh, well, I mean it's such a, it's such sincerely. A <laughs> uh, so this has been Ears Wide Open. This is a project of the Open Book at 201 Ponsonby Road. If you enjoy this podcast and if you enjoy secondhand bookshops, the best thing you can possibly do for us is to visit the Open Book and buy a book or look on our website and sign up to our book bag program where you get sent books, uh, hand-wrapped and